Then let's uh, go ahead to our first reading, Psalm 11 and Psalm 12, or Psalms 11 and 12. Psalm 11, verse 1, here now, the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, his countenance doth behold the upright. (coughs) Psalm 12. To the chief musician upon Shemnit, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth. For the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, everyone, with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things, who have said, With our tongue will we prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. So we have in Psalm 11, um, I want to keep this marked here. Um, a psalm of David and to the chief musician. We need not belabor that. We know what that means. It is, it is a command to sing this psalm in the public worship of God. It was delivered by David to the men that served in that capacity uh, during his reign. Um, the occasion of this psalm is difficult because... <laughs> Some would have it, David, when he was fleeing from his enemies. But David says in this, in this poem, in this psalm, how shall I flee? And so that doesn't really work, right? You say to me, flee as a bird to your mountain, but how shall I do that? It has David fleeing when, when um, 
you know, D- David didn't really flee in that, you know, in, in the same sense that we have here. So the occasion of it is difficult. It's hard to know exactly what is being spoken of here. Um, but let's go ahead and dive into the psalm. First of all, I put my trust in the Lord. How do you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? So, um, the point that, that David is making here is that, is that because I put my trust in the Lord, I will not or should not behave myself as those who have no trust. I'm not going to flee as, uh, as, a, um, as a bird to the mountain. Why? Because I have put my trust in the Lord. We have a, we have a palpable uh, illustration of that, don't we, in Elijah. So Jezebel, uh, after Elijah uh, has 450 prophets of Baal killed on Mount Carmel, Jezebel says, you know, God do that much and more to me if you're not like them by the end of the day. And what does Elijah do? He flees to the mountain of God. And interestingly, when the Lord comes to Elijah, the first thing he says to Elijah is, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? I remember one uh, teacher that I had a long, long time ago uh, said, it didn't really make any sense. He's just killed 450 prophets of Baal. Why, why didn't he say, let's have barbecued queen as well? You know? Well, I think that Elijah truly feared for his life and he fled to the mountain of God. And the Lord rightly, with a mild rebuke, asks him, why are you here? Well, I've been very zealous for the Lord my God and I alone am left and they seek my life to kill me. And the Lord tells him, do you, you remember, I've got more work for you to do. Go down the mountain and minister. You shouldn't be up here. Right? And the people of God, I, I think we heard this in our conference. I think Dr. Piper was very clear when he said these words or something similar. He said, I don't think that we are uh, in, in favor of the retreatism that some would call upon the church to have today. That she needs to just just retreat out of the world. That's not a a viable option, he said. Yet, we must only partake in that public arena in such a way so as to keep ourselves from being affected by it because it is horribly wicked. And so he said, retreat is not the answer, but retrenching is. And I thought that was a pretty astute point. I think that that there may come a time where our, quote, cultural interaction or cultural witness may have to draw back a little bit while we re-evaluate what the best way to interact with such a dark culture is. There may be something there. But fleeing to, uh, to a mountain as a bird or the retreatism, we've talked about that before. We, we've seen that in history We've seen the monasteries and and what happened there. The difficulty with retreating from the world and holding yourself up in a monastery is when you hold yourself up, you still, you brought sin with you. You don't get away from sin because you've left the world. You bring it with you and very often intensify certain aspects of it, right? 
Sometimes it's that interaction and militancy in the world that the Lord uses for the sake of our purity as the body of Christ. So he will, um, he will lay out the difficulty. The wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow and the string that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. And then he will ask this question. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And again, Dr. Piper was instructive in that he set the Hebrew before us properly. The authorized version is not as accurate as it could be here. Uh, really, the way we ought to translate this is, if the foundations be destroyed, what hath the righteous done? It should be cast in a, in, a, uh, in a perfect, a Hebrew perfect, rather than a Hebrew imperfect. What hath the righteous done? Very often, the people of God draw uh, themselves off of the field too early and advance the difficulty rather than arrest it. Very often the easy way is not to engage. Right? Fall back in our enclaves and ghettos, if you will. So, but the real answer is, verse 4, that the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold and his eyelids try the children of men. And note the contrast here. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Ooh, that's an interesting linguistic contrast, isn't it? He trieth the righteous, and those whom he leaves untried are the ones whom he hates. You see that? So the chastisements, the trials, the afflictions that the Lord brings on his people by means of interaction with the ungodly, that's a way that the Lord shows us his love. And by withdrawing his hand of care, he reveals that yes, there are those in this world whom God hateth. There are some professing Christians that are alive today that would not be able to say those words. They don't believe that God hates anybody. They think that God loves everybody. Now, it is true that God has commanded us to love everyone. That is true. And we must. That is his command. But God does not love everyone. There are those whom the Lord hates. We saw this also in the last chapter. There are a set of people that says that he abhors them. Same word, hatred. God has not revealed to us whom he loves and whom he hates. He's given us the patterns of living for those whom he love and, or loves and those whom he hates so that we might know who our and his enemies are. But remember that those who are today our and God's enemies may tomorrow be his beloved adopted children. He knows, we don't. The Lord knows those who are his. So upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and in horrible tempest this shall be the portion of their cup. This is the wonderful plan that God has for their lives. Right? And then for the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. So Psalm 11. Psalm 12. To the chief musician upon Shemnit. The Psalm of David. Shemnit. Uh, means the eighth 
This is either the name of a tune or the name of an instrument, something like that. Um, some commentators go so far as to say an eight-member choir was to sing it originally or something like that. So again, we have another difficulty uh, or a difficult time. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fall from among the children of men. As we said for Psalm 10, so we say for Psalm 12. This is a nice prayer in days like ours. These are words that the Spirit of God is indicted to be put into our mouths, to offer back to the Lord in prayer in times of national societal decline, irreligion, and wickedness. Help, Lord, the godly man ceases. From among the sons of men, the, the faithful are, are declining. Is that true of our age? It seems true, as far as we can tell. The Lord knows absolutely what's right and wrong in that, but as far as we can tell. So what do they do? They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, with double heart. The Lord shall cut off those flattering lips and so on. But notice verse 4. This is the statement of the wicked. We have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Our lips are not our own, are they? The Lord has given us lips for a particular reason. So that we may praise him. So that we may speak the glad tidings of his kingdom. So that we may speak truth one to another. That we might be the people of truth and uprightness in that. And the threat then that the Lord will cut off all flattering lips. Well, if you'll remember, we... We looked at this psalm just a few weeks ago when we were talking about the preservation of Scripture. And we said that it's parallel to Psalm, I'm sorry, to Isaiah 59, right? That there's a parallel in that what's going on in the greater society around the church that David is speaking of here is that it's filled with liars and lying. The way Isaiah says it is truth has fallen in the street. That reminds us a lot of our age. I, I don't know of another age that I've ever read about or lived in where the majority of things that our citizenry hears we expect to be lies. Whatever it is that you hear out there in the world, whether it's the, uh, uh, an advertiser on the radio or other media, whether it's a, uh, whether it's a, a magazine article that you read, whether it's the news or no matter what it is, over and again, we expect it to be filled with untruths. Maybe not 100%, but we're anticipating that much of what we hear in our day is going to be lies. Right? They with a double heart speak. They speak with flattering lips. Vanity fills their mouth. So then the Lord once again says, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. Well, we can count on that word, can't we? Verse 6, The words of the Lord are most pure. They are as silver tried in an earthen furnace seven times. And then it says, 
Thou shalt keep them. Thou shalt preserve all of them from this generation, this wicked generation forever. And we said that the, that the pronoun there, them, and the second pronoun, every one of them, that those speak to the two antecedents. The first is the people of God and the, word, and the second are, is the words of God. The people of God and the words of God are going to be protected from the ungodly who speak falsehood habitually. Because God's words are most pure as, er, as silver tried in an earthen furnace seven times. The Lord shall preserve them from this generation forever. And that's where we developed our little quip. You don't take the most precious thing that you have and store it with your enemy. You take that precious word and you store it among your own people. Right? So the wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. They walk on every side. That's tantamount to them saying when there are wicked men in high places, uh, what that means is that the wicked men that should be punished by those ones that are in high place, they're not, and so they walk on every side. They're, they're just everywhere. When there's no king, every man does that which is right in his own eyes, right? In the book of Judges, we were talking about this during the break. In the book of Judges, in chapters 17 through the end, twice we hear the refrain, in, that, in those days there was no king in Israel, every man did that which is right in his own eyes. That's the one we all remember. But there's another one we don't remember. And that is the introduction to at least two other chapters, maybe three. I, I, I don't remember off the top of my head. But at least two other chapters where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And that's all it says. And then it shows some wicked thing that takes place. As if not having the king was a part of the genesis of that wickedness that came to pass. Right? We ha- you know, the hard part about that is, beloved, is that we have in, throughout the book of Judges, we see other churchmen that are there. We see prophets and we see priests. And they're not able to stop the tide. In fact, one of those priests that I'm thinking of is as wicked as everyone else. Right? Because there's no king. There's no enforcement. Sometimes even the church, and we see this in Hezekiah and Josiah, even the church needs some civil reinforcement to do the right thing. So the wicked walk on every side, everywhere, when vile men are in high place. All right? Well, let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer.